Take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4. As you're turning there, I will remind you that we have been working on some memory verses, verses out of 1 Peter, and we are looking to complete a passage of Scripture that will help us put some things together. Tyler, if we could go to the next slide, please. First, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11 is the passage that we are going to try to put together in our minds over the next couple of months. This morning, we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. Try to apply them to our minds, hide them in our hearts, so that we can then understand a foundation that God has given to us. Let's start with a reference. We'll start with 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, and then we will read or quote the verses, and then we will end with the reference, okay? Here we go. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. Let me encourage you to read this passage of Scripture this week. Start to hide it in your heart. Start to become familiar with it because we're going to get to the part where it tells us that we are to add to our faith so that we will be fruitful and abound in all that God has given to us. Work on that. Hand me another brick. We have looked at a lot of bricks And we have tried to add these to our lives as we progress and have a solid foundation upon which we can build our lives. Last week, we looked at the brick of perseverance or endurance. And we said that this is a block that is necessary in our lives if we're to get through the struggles that are going to be part of life. Our brick this week is press on. This is very similar to last week's brick. But this brick has the idea of something that's going to take place in our lives. I want to contrast perseverance and pressing on. Perseverance has the idea of that which is an attitude. It is internal in our lives. And pressing on is the external that causes us to accomplish the task at hand at hand. Perseverance has the idea of being mental, understanding that it starts up here and then it becomes physical as we press on and we get it accomplished in our lives. Perseverance is an attitude. Pressing on is the action. Perseverance has the idea of a decision that we make and Pressing on is the determination to accomplish that decision in our life. And we've all been there, haven't we? In talking with Mark DeRyder this morning, so glad he is here. A couple of years ago, he made the decision to pursue a seminary education. And now he's in the middle of it and he's pressing on. And it has not been an easy road for Mark. Not mentally, not physically, 
but he continues to work on that which he believes God has called him to do. So this morning, I want to encourage us to press on, not just to persevere with an attitude that reminds us this is what we're supposed to be doing, but to actually do it so that we might be the kind of people that God wants us to be. Are you in Nehemiah chapter 4? I want to read beginning with verse 6 this morning through the end of the chapter. Will you stand in honor to God's word? Nehemiah chapter 4, I'm going to begin with verse 6 and read through the end of the, the chapter. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the officials, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that the Lord had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held spears and shields, bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side when he built the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. and Half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right May God add his blessing to the reading of his word as we take it, apply it to our hearts, and live it out through our lives for his honor and his glory. And all God's people said, 
Thank you. Please be seated. I want you to note something in verse 6. In verse 6 it says, so we built the wall. That's a good thing. There was progress going on in the task that was before them. And God was giving them success. You know, it's great to see what God does in our lives. Amen? Isn't it encouraging to hear reports from Roger and Noreen and to, to sense God's work on their lives? Us having a small part in that? It's great to know that we can build the wall. But I want you to notice something else in that verse. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. The wall that was being built was only half done. They had seen God's hand. They had witnessed his work. They had recognized his strength in their life, but it was only half done. You know, the most dangerous time in a project is when it's half done. You're seeing things happening. You're, you're sensing the task. But you look up and you see that that mountain sure is a long ways off. And there is still a long ways to go. And there is a lot to be accomplished. You know, it's kind of like when we get saved. Isn't it great to be a Christian? And we're all excited about what God has done as we understood his love and that he sent his son to be the savior of the world and we receive him as personal savior and are born again in the family. Isn't that wonderful? What just happened is the excitement that takes place after the wall's high bu half built. Right? We've been a Christian for a while. We know that there are struggles. We know that there are challenges. And so it's kind of, well... I guess we'll get there someday. At one point, it'll all be over with. And frankly, a lot of times we lose our enthusiasm and we lose our steam. And we fail to recognize the same excitement in living the Christian life that we had in becoming part of the family. Alan Redpath, in his book, Victorious Christian Service on Nehemiah, says this. They had reached the halfway stage. The task was half finished. And I suggest to you that in any work for God or in any Christian experience, that is the hardest place of all. The halfway stage is the toughest of all. When the initial enthusiasm for some project has departed, when the funds have been raised or the building has been put up, for whatever it may be, when the organization has started off, the initial push has somehow departed, and you are more and more conscious, not so much of what has already been done, but of what is yet to be done. You are increasingly oppressed with the magnitude of the unfinished task. Just then is the toughest bit of all. That's true, isn't it? That is exactly when we must push on. 
That is exactly when we must press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is the point that we must suck it up, strap on the sword, and get ready for the battle. Understanding that the battle is the Lord's. I know something about mountain climbing. Not a lot. But I know something about mountain climbing. In 2005, I was minding my own business. Serving the Lord in Rochester, Michigan. Doing everything that I could and just enjoying a a great time together. And I get a phone call from my brother Todd. This is my brother Todd and myself. And Todd says, hey, Tom, what are you doing in 30 days? This was December. I said, I'm going to celebrate Christmas and New Year's. What are you doing in 30 days? Now, Todd had been on a sabbatical. Todd had applied to the Eli Lilly Foundation and had received funds to go on a six-month sabbatical, and those funds provided for him resources to be able to get out and do some things. He had built his request around climbing a mountain, around all of the mountaintop experiences that are in the Word of God. And so he says, hey, Tom, I want you to go to Argentina with me. What's in Argentina, Todd? He said, there's a mountain down there called Akingangua. It's one of the seven summits of the world, and you and I are going to climb that. I said that to Connie, and she said, I have one question for you. Is your life insurance intact? (laughs) It's true. So go back a slide, will you please, Tyler? So we met in Mendoza, Argentina, and we had to apply for a permit to climb Akangangua. Now, we went with a group of folks and had a guide and all that kind of stuff. But this is Todd and me at the provincial headquarters of Akangangua getting ready to go on a trip. Notice how excited we are. We ain't done nothing yet. Three days later, we get our first glimpse of Akangangua. This is Akangangua. The top is at 22,842 feet. Now, airline pilots are required to use oxygen at 10,000 feet. Okay? And we are going to climb this thing without oxygen. So we begin our climb. One of our first stops was at the base camp, Camp Mulas. How would you like to wake up in the morning and have that be outside your tent? There's our tent down here in the lower left-hand corner. Now, It took us five days to get here. We had a bus ride from Mendoza to Plaza de Inca. We hiked in from Plaza de Inca to Confluencion. And then we hiked from Confluencion to Plaza de Mulas. By this time, we're not smiling quite so much. (laughs) Because it's cold. It's uncomfortable. 
even though I had a mat underneath my sleeping bag, I still had rocks underneath the mat, underneath my sleeping bag. At this level, you have to think about breathing. It's a wonderful place. No hot showers. Outside toilets. Two people to a tent with all of your gear if you didn't want it covered by snow in the morning. So my brother and I start to climb. And we get to a place called Camp Canada. This is my brother and me at Camp Canada. This is now at 17,650 feet. We climbed to this point in a blizzard. There were eight of us in our party. Todd was not feeling well. And so we had been to this point and back to, a, to help us get acclimatized. So we'd been there before and had come back, and now we're going again with, with our 50 pounds of materials on our back. The guide says to me, because Todd was not doing well, I'm going to take the rest of the group on up, get them settled, I'll come back for you. Boy, is that a comforting statement. He said, just keep going up. So he goes, we linger behind, struggle getting up here in this blizzard. Finally, he comes back. Now, I'm the old guy of the group, right? <laughs> that is correct, Deshaun, but I didn't need it emphasized. <laughs> I'm the old guy of the group, right? So, so this, this guide comes down and says to my brother, let me take your pack for you. Who's taken my pack for me? So we get up to, to Camp Canada, and, and this is what we look like up there. But let me show you what it looked like as the sun began to set. Cool is right. What a beautiful, beautiful place. Now, the rest of the story is... This is how my brother and I went. We probably could have climbed higher, but if someone had said to us, you need to move and you need to move now, we didn't have that kind of strength or energy to it. While we were there, in the two weeks we were there, there were six people who died on this mountain. This was not a place for sissies. And we realized that, and so we came down and eventually made our way back to Mendoza. Now, what we didn't know, what I didn't know, was back in Rochester, Michigan, one of our family's wives had had an aneurysm. And the family was making decisions as to whether to take her off life support or not. Roy was convinced that God blew me off that mountain because I got home in time to officiate the funeral. I will tell you that I called Connie from Santiago, Chile, and I said to her, just want you to know, we've cut our trip a little short. These are the kind of things that happen. I'm coming home. You know what she said to me? You can't come home yet. <laughs> she was taking the wallpaper off of the dining room and hadn't gotten it finished. 
this trip, next slide, Tyler, was one of the most demanding physically and mentally and, yeah, even spiritually things I ever did. It was all fun and games when we started. It was all excitement when we began. But you get into it, and all of a sudden, it's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other, and that's about all you can do. And you have to think about even the ordinary things of life, getting them done. And yet, God was faithful. Through the whole experience, and his purpose was accomplished in each of our lives. Great opportunity, I won't tell the stories now, to witness to people, especially when you hear somebody died on a mountain. Great opportunity to spend some time with a brother whom I love. Wonderful that I did a little better than he did. That's where Nehemiah is. Half the wall's done. The people of Judah, and we looked at that the last couple of weeks, said, we're too tired, there's too much rubble, nobody cares anymore, let's just eat worms and die and quit. And then on top of that, Sanballat and Tobiah, whom we met back in chapter 2, are now ratcheting up their opposition. And all of a sudden, Nehemiah has some decisions to make. He can either quit and go home, and by the way, going home wouldn't have been too bad for Nehemiah because he was in the king's palace, remember that? Or he can say to his people around him, all right, folks, let's strap it up, let's put it on, Let's get the shields out, and we're going to finish this work no matter what it takes because this is what God has called us to. And that's what happened. As I thought about this experience, I thought about three truths that I think are very important for us to understand this morning. Truth number one is this, the enemy will attack. Count on it, the enemy will attack. Now last week we said that the enemy is there, he's real. Let me tell you something, not only is he real, but he's going to go after you. He's going to come after me. And any time that we try to fulfill God's purpose in our lives, there is going to be opposition. Now, there are two types of opposition that we need to look at. First of all, there's internal opposition. And then there's external opposition. The internal opposition has been in play for some time. Can I get you to turn back to chapter 2, please? Nehemiah chapter 2. Look with me at verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Gershon the Arab heard these things, they jeered at us and despised us and said, 
What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Look at that internal opposition. You can call this campaign talk. It's anything to get you off your game. It's anything to distract you, to discourage you, to refocus your thoughts and, and your emotions. And all of a sudden, the enemy is real, and he is out there, and he's making fun of you. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never. Don't you believe that for one instant? Jump back to chapter 4, will you please? Verse 1. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that? To buy the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, it, he will break down their stone wall. That's that internal attack. That's sometimes that, that voice that says, you know what? You can't do this. You know what? It's not worth the effort. You know what? It just really doesn't matter. Why, why don't you just quit? Why don't you stop? Why don't you forget the whole thing? Be a whole lot easier. After all, wall's half built. Let's just quit now. But not only is there internal stuff, campaign talk, there's also external stuff, which is true combat. Jump down to verse 11. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. I don't want to be there, do you? We have an enemy that will attack us, and he not only wants to discourage us, he wants to destroy us. We see that in our culture. We, we see that in our relationships. You struggle with your relationship with your mate, and, and you get discouraged because nothing seems to be happening that's drawing you together. And you're about ready to give up. And then all of a sudden, Satan will throw something at you that really hurts. And you'll just quit. Because the battle's not worth it. We see that, don't we? We hear about it all the time. And it happens so quickly and easily because we do have an adversary, the devil, who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The most dangerous time in our lives is when we forget there's an enemy that wants to destroy us. 
And yet we live in America. Do you remember 9-11? Not too many months after 9-11, Connie and I were flying. And as we boarded the plane, a gentleman stood up and said, okay, you and you and you, and he pointed at me. If anything goes down on this plane, we're going to handle it. But why me? But you know, we were all aware, very acutely aware, that there was an enemy out there that could very easily be right where we were that wanted to destroy us. Are you aware in your life that you're living in a combat zone? Are you aware in your life that Satan himself wants to impact you in a negative way so that the cause of Christ is destroyed? Let me tell you something. The enemy's going to attack. And you and I better be ready for it. Every once in a while, I will go to greet someone, perhaps even Walt Briggs. And I will come down the aisle, and I will tap Walt on the shoulder, and he will jump. Walt, that's not my intent. But you know why he jumps? He wasn't expecting it. You know why we're defeated? Because we're not expecting it. Because the reality is, greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. And if we expect the attack and are ready for the attack, we have all of the resources we need to meet the attack. Amen? The enemy will attack. And so what's our response? We need to engage the enemy. Offensive, not defense. Now, we could go to Ephesians chapter 4 and talk about the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to fight against the wiles of the devil. We could talk about the breastplate of truth, breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is the what, folks? Thank you, Word of God, sword of the Spirit, offensive weapon, Word of God. How do we fight this battle? Word of God. It's not by getting a consensus from all of our friends. It's not by talking to Dr. Phil. It's the Word of God, right? So how do we engage the enemy? Turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Will you please? And Roger, even though the siren does not go off, there are still some restraints. So I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to get through this message. First Timothy chapter 6. Let me begin with verse 11. Engage the enemy. But as for you, O man of God. Now stop right there. The you is specifically Timothy, right? 
Paul writing to Timothy, a young pastor who he's trying to encourage. And Timothy is identified as a man of God. Paul has told Timothy, let no man despise your youth, but be an example to the believers, right? Paul has told Timothy, that gift which was given to you, stir it up. Get it moving. Use it. And now he says, Timothy, you're a man of God. That is not a title. That is an identity. Okay? Let me see if I can explain this. We have titles that people give to individuals because of what they do. Many of you, and I appreciate it, call me pastor. Pastor is what I do. Pastor is not who I am. I do know a number of pastors that pastor is who they are. But pastor is a title based upon what I do. Okay? Man of God was an identity based on who Timothy was. You could have called him Pastor Timothy because he was pastoring the church at Ephesus. But man of God was an identity based upon who Timothy was. He was a man who understood his responsibility to God and he fulfilled that responsibility to the best of his ability. And everything that he said and did. That's not bad, right? Now the question is, how would someone identify your character as it relates to your relationship with God? Paul then says to Timothy, you got to fight to fight and here's what you do. Timothy, flee these things. The first thing you need to know in the battle, Timothy, is that you are to flee some things. There are some things that you can't have in your life because you are a man of God and the enemy is after you. Now, what kind of things? Well, if you jump back up into the previous verses, you read this, verse 6. For godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Okay, what's that tell us? It tells us, first of all, we need to learn contentment. Jim, thank you so much for beginning your study on contentment this morning. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, King James, 
therewith to be content. I used to think that had to do with whether I was living in Ohio or Michigan. And even though I'm a Buckeye by birth, I have learned in Michigan to be content. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about wherever I find myself in whatever circumstances, whether I have a lot or don't have a lot, I've learned that God's going to take care of me. And so, Timothy, flee the things that cause you to be discontent. And then he says, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You ever see a hearse pulling a U-Haul? Now, I understand over in Egypt you have the pyramids and the pharaohs tried to take it all with them. But you know what? It's all still there. They didn't take a thing with them. They hid it. People discovered it, looted it. But it's all still there. We brought nothing into this world. Going to take nothing out. Be content. Roger Noreen, I so appreciate your weekly journals. You tell us what God's doing. You know, these folks, if you want to hear about contentment, talk to these folks and how God provides for them on the field. Wow. Flee the things that cause you to be discontent. Have food and clothing, verse 8. Be content. Got your needs met today? Be content. And then it says, don't desire to be rich because that is a real issue. Be content. It can cause temptation in your life. Verse 10, love of money. Not, not money. It doesn't say money. It says the love of money. Trying to gain it when you're not content is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, how's that all break down? Turn over to 2 Timothy real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is talking about those who are to live out the Christian life. And he uses a couple of illustrations. Verse 5, he talks about an athlete. Verse 6, he talks about a hardworking farmer. But in verse 4, he talks about a soldier. And he simply says this, no soldier gets entangled in the civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. A soldier has a single purpose, and that's, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, I am here to do it, sir. Right? How many been in the military? How many of you ever talked back to your commanding officer and gotten away with it? Why? It's yes, sir. And in the military, you don't volunteer for anything, do you, Dave? No, sir. All right. <laughs> when we are in combat, the first thing we have to realize is there must be a single focus. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us 
lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance, single focus, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. Why? Because he's the commander. He's the yes, sir. Bible tells us that it's very, very easy for us to get distracted. And if we are going to be successful in pressing on, building the rest of the wall, we need to get rid of some stuff in our lives. Because we cannot complete the task that God has called us to by incorporating all the stuff of our culture. but must remember who our commander-in-chief is. Next week, we're going to look at following some things and fighting for some things as we engage our enemy. But be assured, the enemy is real, and the enemy will And he will attack when we are most vulnerable. When the wall's only half done. Because if he can get us to get off task, it'll never get done. To the honor and glory of our God. Let's pray together.